Welcome to another iGrow season at APC. We're so glad you've tuned in. Our church is blessed with excellent teachers of the Word of God, and our hope is that you find today's teaching enlightening, motivational, and encouraging. To learn more about our church, visit theapc.org or find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's lesson. Well, I'm going to open up uh, with Psalms 68, 27, and uh, this is what it says, Psalms 68, 27. I did, I put it, it came to me after I printed that out. Psalm 68, 27. It says, there is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulon, the princes of Naphtali. And that's the English Standard Version. So, uh, it's right out. There is Benjamin, the least of these, in the lead. And so this is what I just want to say. I'm going to start out with just a little short history of the city of Jabesh Gilead. Because this city will, uh, it's a portion of King Saul's uh, tenure as king. It's just a short history of Jabesh Gilead that features prominently in the story of King Saul. We are examining King Saul as a Hebrew prophet, okay? The Jews consider King Saul as a prophet, and we will as restorationists. We are restorationists, and we will continue in this Bible study to present King Saul through the lens of of the first century church. Okay, so we're going to be studying King Saul tonight as the first century church looked at King Saul without years and years and years of of, um, layers of Christianity, modern-day Christianity, uh, which was polluted with Greek philosophy. So Jabesh Gilead has a colorful history in the story of Israel generally but in King Saul's chronologically as well. When the 12 tribes crossed from the east side of the uh, east side to the west side of the Jordan River to take possession of the promised land, the tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay behind. They wanted to stay behind on the eastern side of the Jordan River because there was plenty of land for their for their uh uh, cattle and flocks. Well, you can just imagine how this went over with the other 11 tribes of, of Israel. Well, this went off like a, a stick of dynamite. And the other 11 tribes felt betrayed and were declaring war on Manasseh. And the tribe of Manasseh reconsidered and amid a great amount of confusion and misunderstanding, well, maybe you guys misunderstood us and everything else, Manasseh decided that their men of war would go with the rest of Israel to battle, but their young ones, flocks, cattle, and wives, would stay behind. And there, you know, a treaty was, uh, a treaty and testimony of this agreement was made, and war was averted. Well, years later, years later, an actual war did occur with Benjamin, another tribe of Israel, that, that Jonathan here, We'll get into more detail in his portion of, of the lesson. 
A vow was made with the 11 tribes of Israel that went to war against Benjamin, that whoever did not join this cause of war with the 11 tribes of Israel against Benjamin, well, that community would be put to the sword just as Benjamin would be put to the sword, and that they would never give any of their uh, sons or daughters, uh, uh, would, they would not give any of their uh, daughters to the men of Benjamin. And, and, and they made that vow, they made that vow to ben, about Benjamin, that they would not give any of their daughters, because they really weren't expecting uh, a great big fight from, ben, from Benjamin. Uh, they didn't expect Benjamin to be as belligerent and uh, potent as they turned out to be. Well, after the war with Benjamin was concluded, only 600 Benjamin men remained. And Benjamin was annihilated. All men, women, and children were put to the sword before Benjamin's capitulation. All of Israel lamented at their oaths at the beginning about this uh, vow that they made about not giving their daughters to the men of Benjamin. Because now Benjamin was on the road to extinction. And after all, and after uh, that, the whole, and, and, and after all, that was the whole purpose of the Benjamite War. The law of the laws of Moses forbade the pollution of giving and taking their sons and daughters from other nations. So the only recourse of, of Benjamin was uh, to have wives from the tribes that vowed that they wouldn't do. So Israel took stock of their previous vow that whoever didn't come to the aid of the eleven tribes that 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 area would be put to the sword as well. Well, they took stock, and lo and behold, Jabesh Gilead didn't help out with the war with, with, against Benjamin. And just like the tribe of, Met, of Manasseh years ago, you know, hey, you know, you guys go on, fight your war, and we're going to stay over here. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, uh, that was in their DNA, you know, uh, they were just going to stay home. Well, Israel rose up and annihilated Jabesh-Gilead as well. All the men, women, and children of Jabesh-Gilead were killed. Only 400 women who never had relations with a man were spared. These 400 virgins were given to the uh, tribe of Benjamin. The other 200 virgins for the remaining Benjamin men were met by another method, which you can read for yourself in Judges 21. So the land of Jabesh-Gilead was then repopulated with the tribe of Manasseh through the laws of Jewish inheritance. So although Jabesh-Gilead was of the tribe of Manasseh at the time of King Saul's kingship, the significance of Jabesh-Gilead is that uh, two-thirds, or roughly 67% probability, that the uh, maternal bloodline of the tribe of Benjamin came from Jabesh-Gilead, um, the tribe of Manasseh. Just like we would say today that our mother or grandmother or great-grandmother or whatever is of the Cherokee Nation uh, or Ghana or Italy, China, or any, uh, uh, Ireland or any other nation. Okay, so that's Jabesh-Gilead. If you have any questions, if we have time, 
Um, we've got a small group, it's not a whole lot. Uh, iron sharpeneth iron, if we can open it up for discussion, if we have time, uh, we most certainly uh, appreciate that and look forward to it. Jonathan? Now I'm going to talk about King Saul. Now what, what Brother David talked about just now, it's very important what happens with King Saul and in, in the founding of, of the Kingdom of Israel. So when I was first asked to talk about King Saul, I was thinking, well, how do you talk about King Saul? Because King Saul, it, it's more than just a person. It, it, it's about a tribe, you know, the, the, the tribe of, of Benjamin. And, there, and once you study the, the history before King Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, you kind of like see uh, the importance of the, 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 the importance of what King Saul had on his shoulders. So the first time King Saul or the first time Benjamin shows up because King Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin shows up in Genesis with Rachel and Jacob. So Jacob's the father, Rachel is the wife and Rachel is the mother and she has Benjamin. But she calls him Benoni, Benoni, which means son of my sorrow, because she was about ready to die, and she called her son Benomi. And Benjamin is the last tribe of, you know, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that means son of my sorrow. But Jacob didn't like the name that Rachel gave Benjamin, or originally Benjamin, so Jacob changed it to Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. So we don't call call him Ben-Oni, we call him Benjamin, which is what Jacob called him. So Jacob loved Benjamin very much because of Rachel, because he loved Rachel. And thinking that Joseph had died by a wild animal and being tricked by his other sons, Benjamin in Genesis is, is displayed as a character that does not really get to make any, any decision in any of the family affairs. He's just basically, you know, kind of like a, a, a hand token, you, you might say, because he doesn't really, he doesn't say any words, doesn't really make any decisions, you know, he's just passed around, you know, to, to Joseph, and in like a family, little family struggle. But on Jacob's deathbed, when he is pronouncing blessings over his 12 sons and children, Jacob pronounces a not-so-blessed blessing. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. So, already, you know, in Genesis, Benjamin is not given a very good title in, in the blessing. But Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12, Moses gives a final blessing on the people of Israel and blesses Benjamin with, The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day and dwells between his shoulders. And he says this in regards to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. And the next time we come up to a big story with the tribe of Benjamin, we come up into the story in the book of Judges. So the Israelites have taken the promised land, they're, they're settling in, and they go in there, and Judges chapter 1, verse 21, it says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, 
So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So they're not really doing such a, a, a good job in what they're supposed to be doing. So, and then later on in Judges, we come up to one of the greatest tragedies, I think, in, in the Bible overall. And that's in, okay, Judges chapter 19 and chapter 20. So, the tragedy begins with a Levite. I'm going to keep the story very short because this could be a whole other lesson in and of itself. So, it begins with a Levi and his concubine. And the Levi and his concubine end up spending the night with uh, somebody in, the, in Gibeah, the land of, land of the Benjaminites. So, what unfolds in this particular story is utterly horrible. So the narrative that is told is the same one found in Genesis chapter, or it's found in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. So the events in Judges chapter 19 are the same events that happen in, are the same events that happen in Genesis chapter 19. So, however, I don't know how they edited all that together, but it, it, that's the way it turned out. So what is sad is that the Benjaminites became as the people of Sodom and turned it into the land that God once destroyed. So what folds is that the Levite and concubine are spending the night with this man, and the Benjaminites, some Benjaminites, come around the house, and they want to basically rape the Levite and, you know, then leave. But the master of the house says no. He says, I've got some a virgin daughter that you can have your way with, and they say, no, bring out the Levite. So the Levite, he pushes his concubine out, and they have their way with the concubine, and she ends up dying later on in the day, and keep, keep the story short, there was a big war, like he said, that there was a big war that happened, and uh, basically, pretty much all the Benjaminites got wiped out except 600 over this, over this concubine death. And uh, the, the only way that the people of Benjamin could uh, repopulate is, you know, everybody else would, you know, turn around and, you know, not, not look while, while uh, the Benjaminites took a wife during a festival where some women would be dancing and having a party. So that's kind of how the Benjaminites got, got some wives and then get exterminated because you can't lose one of the 12 tribes because it, it just wouldn't be good. So that's kind of a brief history of Saul's heritage. That, that's, that's what's placed on Saul's shoulders when, when we come up to the scene with uh, King Saul. So one of the questions might be, what, what brought King Saul to uh, uh, the throne? What, what pivoted and you know, pushed him into that, that uh, place. Well, the main thing is corruption. Corruption is what placed King Saul as, you know, in, in the head of the monarchy. Uh, and it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now Eli was a high priest. Uh, his sons, however, they did not walk in the footsteps of God. They disobeyed God. They, you know, they made a mess of everything. And 
They didn't uphold to God's values. And eventually it came down to Samuel, who then kind of took the place of Eli. And what happens later on? Well, we have the same story that happens again that happened with Eli. It happens with Samuel. So, when, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 8, and verse 2, it says, The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons, Samuel's sons, did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So the corruption of leadership is what made the people cry out for a king. So, yeah, so it wasn't necessarily, uh, a mo- I don't think it was really even a monarchy that they wanted. They just wanted... They didn't want corruption in in the leadership of what they were being dealt with. So the monarchy of Israel was not very good from the very start because uh, because it it just didn't work out so well. Even with David, it just, even continually on, it just was not a good choice for the people. So, but when the people say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, it's not, it's not an accurate statement because all the nations around them, some of them didn't have monarchies. They didn't have kings. Uh, for example, the Philistines, they did not have uh, a monarchy, how we would consider a monarchy. They had, I don't know what we would consider it, but they had more like a, a government of like five lords and kind of like a mayor and governorship. So it was more or less uh, done by a, a select handful of people and everything was delegated by a a few instead of one. So Samuel warned the people about what the kings of Israel would do to them in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, verses 10 through 16. So the people just responded that they wanted what they wanted and nothing you told them could make them change their mind. So Samuel gives them what they want. So now we come to King Saul. Why am I on page four? Get out of this. <coughs> so Saul enters the Bible in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 through 27. So he is introduced to Samuel. Uh, he, he has a humble beginning in the Bible, and he's looking for some missing donkeys. And the name Saul means the one asked for, requested, and that's according to the Anchor Bible Dictionary. So when Saul, but when Saul first opens his mouth, he says in 1 Samuel 9 and verse 5, he says, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and became and become anxious about us. So now, last year, if you were here for my lesson last year, you would know about the importance of first words. Uh, Brother Rommel, you were here for that, right? What, what are the importance of a character's first words? Okay, okay. Well, the, the point of a character's first words is that they define basically who a character is and the type, you know, 
and their words will come back to haunt them later on in the narrative. Their first words will come back to haunt them in the narrative. So, uh, they define a character, and Saul's first words do come back to bite him later on in the story. So, here's a bonus question. Who was the first unofficial, unofficial king over Israel? The first unofficial king over Israel. Well, or in, in Israel, not over Israel, but in Israel. The first unofficial king. Anybody have a guess? Anybody have a clue? Samuel? No, not Samuel. Go ahead. Uh, it was... Uh... It was uh, the one uh, that passed his eyes out. My mind was blank. Samson? Samson. Actually, it was, uh, the answer is in Judges chapter 9, uh, Abimelech. Abimelech was the first unofficial king of Israel. Uh, Samson was a judge. Was he the first judge? Samson? No, he, he was, I think it was one of the last ones in Judges. Yeah. One of the last Judges. Um, well, the reason I said that because when uh, Samson uh, defeated the Philistines, uh, Israel come to him and said, uh, "Will you be over us?" And they made him the leader over the nation. Was that? They never they call him king, but they they made him. Uh, was that before Abimelech or after Abimelech? Abimelech. Abimelech was in chapter, let's see, Ch Judges 9, so it was before Samson. Yeah. And, and, and so, uh, that's why I figured that, that they would call uh, Samson the first king. Because he's the first in that uh, Joshua, when God anointed Joshua to be the man after Moses, and then Israel forsaken the Lord. Joshua said, for me and my house, we're going to serve God. Yeah. But <clears throat> if it seemed evil for y'all to serve God, then choose you a king. And that's when they chose uh, Saul, yeah. Israel's head. Yeah. Yeah. So after the anointing that Saul receives from Samuel, Saul is given further instructions that will empower him with the Spirit of the Lord. So the Spirit of the Lord moved upon King Saul when the prophets came down playing music, yes. and Saul prophesied. So uh, Saul is not just a king, but he is also a prophet now. And this is evident in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 11. And it says, And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So one positive aspect that we can take from Saul is that he is a, a prophet. Uh, what, what amazed them that uh, Saul uh, came off the mountain prophesying. Before then, uh, to be a prophet, you had to be in the lineage of the priesthood. Yep. And uh, Saul was not in the lineage. And, uh, but uh, actually, they called it as a nation, they called him a prophet. But God never ordained him as a prophet. But God did use him yeah. to prophesy. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the second positive thing that we can come from King Saul is that in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 11, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what dad, my dad talked about, is, well, one of his first uh, accomplishments 
begins with uh, the people of Jabesh Gilead. So he delivered the people of Jabesh Gilead out of the hand of the Ammonites. So the Ammonites wanted to uh, insult the people of Jabesh Gilead, but the insult wouldn't just be on Jabesh Gilead, it would be on all of Israel as a whole. So they, they, the Ammonites wanted the men of Jabesh Gilead to pluck out the right eye and you know, it would be a form of surrender to them. So, but Saul, he saved and delivered the people out of the hand of the Ammonites. So, and that will come to Saul's benefit later on in the story after he is dead. However, we have three negatives that come up in the story. And there, there's probably more, but I, I'm only going to pick three. So, uh, the first one that we come to is, uh, with King Saul, is that he gets impatient and offers up sacrifices without Samuel. So Samuel and King Saul offer an exchange of dialogue in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 11 through 14. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash and, and said, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So... Saul got a little impatient and offered up some sacrifices without uh, the help of Samuel. So another negative about King Saul is that he did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. So it says in 1 Samuel 15, 1, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and develop the, to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So later on it says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them and all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So all that was good from the land they saved and everything that was worthless they destroyed it. So they did not do what God wanted them to do. So God tells Samuel in Chapter 15 and verse 11 of 1 Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And that phrase that God gives uh, in, in the turning back, that's the same word that Saul says in his first uh, phrase of come let us go back. That's the same Hebrew, Hebrew phrase and terminology that God is saying to, to Samuel in, in regarding King Saul. So Samuel's First words have come back to uh, bite him. So 
Samuel asked King Saul why he did not destroy all the Amalekites and destroy everything that they had. The response that King Saul gives to Samuel is that he obeyed the voice of God by bringing Agag, the king of Amalek, and destroyed the rest of the people. However, the people wanted to spare the good of the land from destruction to give to God. And uh, Samuel tells King Saul in chapter 15, verse 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, and in obeying the voice of the Lord, Behold, to obey is better than the sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And now, all the translations that I'm reading from is from the ESV, so just word of reference. So, Saul, you know, he, he made two slip-ups, you know, kind of like right in a row. And a third negative that we can come up with, uh, a big negative, is King Saul's jealousy of David. So David started, you know, growing in popularity and fame among the people, and that made Saul uh, quite jealous. Plus, David was anointed by God, and the, the Spirit of the Lord went from King Saul over to David. And David started, you know being kind of like, not necessarily a replacement yet, but started gaining more experience in uh, what God wanted for the people of Israel. So in chapter 18, verse 7, in 1 Samuel says, And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So the people are singing, and they're praising, I don't know, they're, they're praising their, kind of like their accomplishments, might say, and what they have achieved, which is kind of sad in a sense because they're not really glorifying God, I don't think. Um, and Saul was very angry, and, and this saying displeased them. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So King Saul, and we know that, there are multiple instances in the Bible where it has King Saul trying to kill David, and that's located in chapter 18, verse 11, 19, chapter 19, verse 10, 23, verses 8 through 14, chapter 23, verse, 5, verse 15 through 28, chapter 24, and chapter 26. So there are a lot of instances where uh, King Saul tries to get a hold of and kill David. However, there's one more third positive that we have to uh, look at. Now, due to the way King Saul was with David, however, in chapter 26, uh, Saul does try to, Saul does have like a little bit of a repentant uh, attitude towards David, and he does repent of his jealousy of David and tries to somehow make things right. So in Samuel chapter 26, verse 21, uh, David and King Saul are making dialogue with each other, and Saul says, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it which I think it's kind of funny. 
uh, in a sense, because David's supposed to be like, you know, all heroic and everything else, but he seems really afraid to give King Saul his spear. He doesn't really want to uh, interact with King Saul in a way. Uh, he's like, oh, just send, send one of the young men over and, and come and get it. Send one of your men to come and get the spear. He, he does, David doesn't even bother sending one of his young men. He, he says, send one of your young men. So there's a little bit of uh, fear in David's voice. So uh, David also says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life is precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. And in this point of the story, there, there is a longing in Saul's voice uh, to be reunited with David. But David goes on his way, and King Saul returns to the way he came. And again, Saul's first words show up here when it says, and Saul returned to his place. That's the same phrase and terminology for when Saul said, come let us turn back. That's the same Hebrew uh, wording in that regard. Uh, there are like three lessons, though, that I do want us to take away from this uh, lesson. Uh, in my studies of King Saul and, and in the Bible, at first I, I didn't really sympathize with King Saul very much. I was like, okay, you know, you're, you're a bad king. You know, you're, you're just hopeless and worthless and everything else. But as I studied the Bible deeper and how the story goes, uh, in a deeper way, I've come to actually sympathize with King Saul and can, you know, in a, in a small way, uh, relate to him. Uh, first lesson that we should take away from is that we should always strive to help those who fall astray and not make them strive for forgiveness. With Samuel and David, uh, first one that, that I think of in this regard is with Samuel and, you know, and he didn't want anything to do with King Saul after uh, King Saul did not destroy the Amalekites. And King, or Samuel is just pushing King Saul away, but, but Saul is like, you know, grabbing hold of uh, uh, Samuel's garment and the garment tears. And, and it's like, because Saul is, you know, begging for forgiveness and trying to get a hold of God. And Samuel's like, no, no, no. And, you know, people shouldn't have to rip our clothes in order to, you know, get help and forgiveness from God, or from us for that matter. Uh, Saul said to Samuel, uh, this is in chapter 15, verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me 
that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So there is kind of a little bit of restoration, but if you have to fight for it, I mean, it, it, should, it should be easier to come by than that. People should not have to uh, strive for forgiveness. So after the first time King Saul asked for his sin to be pardoned, Samuel should have interceded on behalf of King Saul. But he waited till something bad happened. And in regards to David, after he was chased by King Saul in 1 Samuel 26, David should have done more to help King Saul repair the relationship that had gone, uh, that had gone astray. Because uh, the next part of King Saul's story you know, you got chapter 26, and then you got 27, and then you got 28, where where uh, King Saul is is getting ready to go up against the Philistines, and David's nowhere to be seen, and he's trying to get a hold of God, and can't get a hold of God, so he sees a medium, and you know he he makes a dumb mistake by seeing the the witch of Endor, and uh, it, it doesn't go too well for Saul in the end after that. But, you know, I, I kind of wonder if, if there was a relationship that was fixed between David and King Saul, would King Saul's story have ended up the way it was if, if David and Saul had reunited and tried, if David and Samuel had tried to uh, help King Saul instead of, you know, pushing him aside. And... You know, we, we don't know, we can only uh, guess, um, but it, it's not found. But David should have tried to make peace with King Saul. He did make peace with uh, Jonathan and, and Mephibosheth, uh, Saul's uh, grandson, but with King Saul, he did not. And you do see in the, in the Bible a little bit of a reconnecting between uh, people and, and Genesis. You know, you have... Uh, Isaac and Ishmael, you know, they're like button heads, but at the death of Abraham, they, they come together and they, they bury uh, Abraham together and there's no, like, striving or fighting. And another another reconnecting story that is in Genesis is with uh, Jacob and Esau. So there is a reconnecting and a, and a, and a rebonding uh, that they're not enemies anymore after the whole... Uh, escapade. So there, there's there's always uh, a chance of reconnection in the Bible, but David does not take uh, that chance with King Saul. Uh, another lesson that we have is that good communication is important in not making dumb mistakes. So you know, and I don't know if this just gets overlooked in, in studies, but I, I kind of noticed it uh, in my studies. Uh, is that Jonathan's silence uh, leads to King Saul making a terrible vow. So in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1, it says, One day Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, he said, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 2, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migra. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priests of the Lord, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod. 
and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So nobody knew where Jonathan and his armor bearer were. So Jonathan and his armor bearer are just out doing their own thing. Nobody has a clue of what they're doing. And what happens is Jonathan and his armor bearer start fighting the Philistines, and this leads to a great confusion that would bring King Saul to make a bad vow. In verse 17 of chapter 14, it says, Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So they didn't have a clue where Jonathan and his armor bearer were, and they're just, King Saul is probably frantic and worried. And in verse 24, King Saul says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So King Saul has no clue what in the world is going on with this, and the people don't know. And if Jonathan had told his father... <coughs> Where he was going and what he was going to do, King Saul probably would not have made a stupid vow like that. Uh, and the vow that King Saul made impacted people's lives, and people ended up sinning and making a mistake. Hold on, we'll get to your yes, question sir. in a little bit. So, King Saul's righteous... Okay, and the third lesson that we have to remember is that King Saul's righteous act of rescuing the people of Jabesh Gilead paid off in the end. So, after King Saul, his sons, and his armor bearer died, the men of Jabesh Gilead did, did a valiant feat. So, after, after King Saul is dead and Jonathan and his sons are dead, uh, it says in 1 Samuel 31, verse 8, The next day, when the Philistines came up to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines, to carry the good news to the house, to the house of their idols and to, to the people, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant man arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. So the people that King Saul had rescued early on in the narrative are the same people that are rescuing his body and his son's bodies from the, the Philistines. And the, the basic lesson that we can come up from this is that the good that God uses us for will outlast the, the bad that we do. So it looked like everything was hopeless for King Saul at that moment, but the, the men of Jabesh Gilead kind of uh, righted, in, in a way, righted the wrong that King Saul had done. So, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about the Benjaminites because, you know, King Saul is like a representation of the Benjaminites, but I do want to discuss uh, Mordecai, just mention him real quick that he is a descendant of uh, King Saul's father's house. So uh, Mordecai, and he ended up saving the, the children of Israel in Persia in the story of Esther. And so it doesn't matter what, what your heritage is or, or this and that, like you, you can still be used uh, to help. And, you know, you, you don't have to take your negative heritage to... Do, to change it around and do something good 
for God or start a new uh, new way of going. And then, uh, well, and it's evident that Mordecai was uh, Benjaminite, and that's in Esther 2 and verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Now, Shimei is the one guy that uh, cursed David out and threw stones and hurled insults at him, and that's that's who Mordecai is related to. So Mordecai, Mordecai kind of, you know, I mean, yeah, so that, that should be self-explanatory right there. Uh, Mordecai helped save all the Jews from being annihilated. And then the last uh, prominent Benjaminite that we come to is Saul of Tarsus. So it's possible that Saul of Tarsus was named after King Saul, and Saul of Tarsus was of the tribe of Benjamin. And Saul of Tarsus, he came from the least of the tribes in all of Israel. And he came from like one of the most troubling tribes. But he was able to turn his rough neck heritage into a blessing for God's kingdom. Because, you know, and although not explicitly said in the New Testament and from the New Testament writings that we have from, from Saul of Tarsus, I like to think that Saul of Tarsus, it's not written in the Bible, I, I don't really see it anywhere, but I like to think and imagine that Saul of Tarsus is of the house of King Saul. Just, that's my thinking, but um, it's not, don't, don't take it as scripture, but that's, that's what I like to think of, uh, but that's only my imagination though. Um, and if it wasn't for the Benjaminites and Saul of Tarsus, we probably would not even have uh, the New Testament that we have if it wasn't for uh, the Benjaminites because uh, it was based on the writings uh, that Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus or Paul, had started that the Gospels were written because he first started to write and then everybody else started to write after him. So it doesn't, you know, you don't have to take a, a bad heritage to turn around and use it God's kingdom.